Book One, Chapter Twenty Seven of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty Seven, Five and Twenty. A frequently recurring doubt whether Mr. Pancks's desire to collect information relative to the Dorrit family could have any possible bearing on the misgivings he had imparted to his mother on his return from his long exile, caused Arthur Clennam much uneasiness at this period. What Mr. Pancks already knew about the Dorrit family, what more he really wanted to find out, and why he should trouble his busy head about them at all, were questions that often perplexed him. Mr. Pancks was not a man to waste his time and trouble in researches prompted by idle curiosity. That he had a specific object, Clennam could not doubt, and whether the attainment of that object, by Mr. Pancks's industry, might bring to light, in some untimely way, secret reasons which had induced his mother to take little Dorrit by the hand, was a serious speculation. Not that he ever wavered either in his desire or his determination to repair a wrong that had been done in his father's time, should a wrong come to light and be reparable. The shadow of a supposed act of injustice which had hung over him since his father's death was so vague and formless that it might be the result of a reality widely remote from his idea of it. But if his apprehensions should prove to be well founded, he was ready at any moment to lay down all he had, and begin the world anew. As the fierce, dark teaching of his childhood had never sunk into his heart, so that first article in his code of morals was, that he must begin, in practical humility, with looking well to his feet on earth, and that he could never mount on wings of words to heaven. Duty on earth, restitution on earth, action on earth, these first, as the first steep steps upward. Straight was the gate, and narrow was the way, far straighter and narrower than the broad high road paved with vain professions and vain repetitions, motes from other men's eyes, and liberal delivery of others to the judgment, all cheap materials costing absolutely nothing. No, it was not a selfish fear or hesitation that rendered him uneasy, but a mistrust, lest Pancks might not observe his part of the understanding between them, and, making any discovery, might take some course upon it without imparting it to him. On the other hand, when he recalled his conversation with Pancks, and the little reason he had to suppose that there was any likelihood of that strange personage being on that track at all, there were times when he wondered that he made so much of it. Labouring in this sea, as all barks labour in cross seas, he tossed about, and came to no haven. The removal of little Dorrit herself from their customary association did not mend the matter. She was so much out, and so much in her own room, that he began to miss her, and to find a blank in her place. He had written to her to inquire if she were better, and she had written back, very gratefully, and earnestly telling him not to be uneasy on her behalf, for she was quite well. But he had not seen her, for what, in their intercourse, was a long time. He returned home one evening from an interview with her father, who had mentioned that she was out visiting, which is what he always said when she was hard at work to buy his supper, and found Mr. Meagles in an excited state, walking up and down his room. On his opening the door, Mr. Meagles stopped, faced round, and said, "'Clennam! 
Tatty Coram. What's the matter? Lost. Why, bless my heart alive! cried Clennam in amazement. What do you mean? Wouldn't count five and twenty, sir. Couldn't be got to do it. Stopped at eight and took herself off. Left your house? Never to come back, said Mr. Meagles, shaking his head. "'You don't know that girl's passionate and proud character. "'A team of horses couldn't draw her back now. "'The bolts and bars of the old Bastille couldn't keep her.' "'How did it happen? "'Pray sit down and tell me. "'As to how it happened, it's not so easy to relate, "'because you must have the unfortunate temperament "'of the poor impetuous girl herself "'before you can fully understand it. "'But it came about in this way.' "'Pet and mother and I have been having a good deal of talk together of late. "'I'll not disguise from you, Clennam, that those conversations have not been of as bright a kind as I could wish. "'They have referred to our going away again, in proposing to do which I have had, in fact, an object.' "'Nobody's heart beat quickly. "'An object?' said Mr. Meagles, after a moment's pause, that I will not disguise from you either, Clennam. There's an inclination on the part of my dear child which I am sorry for. Perhaps you guess the person. Henry Gowan. I was not unprepared to hear it. Well, said Mr. Meagles, with a heavy sigh, I wish to God you had never had to hear it. However, so it is. Mother and I have done all we could to get the better of it, Clennam. We have tried tender advice, we have tried time, we have tried absence. As yet, of no use. Our late conversations have been upon the subject of going away for another year at least, in order that there might be an entire separation and breaking off for that term. Upon that question, Pet has been unhappy." and therefore mother and I have been unhappy. Clennam said that he could easily believe it. "'Well,' continued Mr. Meagles, in an apologetic way, "'I admit as a practical man, and I am sure mother would admit as a practical woman, that we do, in families, magnify our troubles and make mountains of our molehills, in a way that is calculated to be rather trying to people who look on.' to mere outsiders, you know, Clennam. Still, Pet's happiness or unhappiness is quite a life-or-death question with us, and we may be excused, I hope, for making much of it. At all events, it might have been borne by Tatty Coram. Now, don't you think so?' "'I do indeed think so,' returned Clennam, in most emphatic recognition of this very moderate expectation. "'No, sir,' said Mr. Meagles, shaking his head ruefully. She couldn't stand it. The chafing and firing of that girl, the wearing and tearing of that girl within her own breast, has been such that I have softly said to her, again and again in passing her, Five and twenty, Tatty Coram, five and twenty. I heartily wish she could have gone on counting five and twenty day and night, and then it wouldn't have happened. Mr. Meagles, with a despondent countenance, in which the goodness of his heart was even more expressed than in his times of cheerfulness and gaiety, stroked his face down from his forehead to his chin, and shook his head again. 
I said to mother, not that it was necessary, for she would have thought it all for herself. We are practical people, my dear, and we know her story. We see in this unhappy girl some reflection of what was raging in her mother's heart before ever such a creature as this poor thing was in the world. We'll gloss her temper over, mother. We won't notice it at present, my dear. We'll take advantage of some better disposition in her another time. So we said nothing. But do what we would, it seems as if it was to be. She broke out violently one night. "'How and why?' "'If you ask me why,' said Mr. Meagles, a little disturbed by the question, for he was far more intent on softening her case than the family's, "'I can only refer you to what I have just repeated as having been pretty near my words to mother. As to how, we had said good-night to Pet in her presence, very affectionately, I must allow, and she had attended Pet upstairs.' You remember, she was her maid. Perhaps Pet, having been out of sorts, may have been a little more inconsiderate than usual in requiring services of her, but I don't know that I have any right to say so. She was always thoughtful and gentle. The gentlest mistress in the world. Thank you, Clennam, said Mr. Meagles, shaking him by the hand. You have often seen them together. Well, we presently heard this unfortunate tatty-corum loud and angry, and before we could ask what was the matter, Pet came back in a tremble, saying she was frightened of her. Close after her came tatty-corum in a flaming rage. "'I hate you all three, says she, stamping her foot at us. "'I am bursting with hate of the whole house.' "'Upon which you—I—' said Mr. Meagles, with a plain good faith that might have commanded the belief of Mrs. Gowan herself, I said, count five-and-twenty tatty-corum. Mr. Meagles again stroked his face, and shook his head, with an air of profound regret. She was so used to do it, Clennam, that even then, such a picture of passion as you never saw, she stopped short, looked me full in the face, and counted, as I made out, to eight. But she couldn't control herself to go any further. There she broke down, poor thing, and gave the other seventeen to the four winds. Then it all burst out. She detested us, she was miserable with us, she couldn't bear it, she wouldn't bear it, she was determined to go away. She was younger than her young mistress, and would she remain to see her always held up as the only creature who was young and interesting, and to be cherished and loved? No, she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she wouldn't. What did we think she, Tatty Coram, might have been, if she had been caressed and cared for in her childhood, like her young mistress? As good as her? Ah, perhaps fifty times as good. When we pretended to be so fond of one another, we exulted over her. That was what we did. We exulted over her, and shamed her, and all in the house did the same. They talked about their fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. They liked to drag them up before her face. There was Mrs. Ticket, only yesterday, when her little grandchild was with her, had been amused by the child's trying to call her Tatty Coram, by the wretched name we gave her, and had laughed at the name. 
why who didn't and who were we that we should have a right to name her like a dog or a cat but she didn't care she would take no more benefits from us she would fling us her name back again and she would go she would leave us that minute nobody should stop her and we should never hear of her again mr meagles had recited all this with such a vivid remembrance of his original that he was almost as flushed and hot by this time as he described her to have been ah oh, well he said wiping his face it was of no use trying reason then with that vehement panting creature heaven knows what her mother's story must have been so i quietly told her that she should not go at that late hour of night and i gave her my hand and took her to her room and locked the house doors but she was gone this morning and you know no more of her no more returned mr meagles i have been hunting about all day she must have gone very early and very silently i have found no trace of her down about us stay you want said clennam after a moment's reflection to see her i assume that yes assuredly i want to give her another chance mother and pet want to give her another chance come you yourself said mr meagles persuasively as if the provocation to be angry were not his own at all want to give the poor passionate girl another chance i know clennam it would be strange and hard indeed if i did not said clennam when you are also forgiving what i was going to ask you was have you thought of that miss wade i have i did not think of her until i had pervaded the whole of our neighbourhood and i don't know that i should have done so then but for finding mother and pet when i went home full of the idea that tatty coram must have gone to her then of course i recalled what she said that day at dinner when you were first with us have you any idea where miss wade is to be found to tell you the truth returned mr meagles it's because i have an addled jumble of a notion on that subject that you found me waiting here there is one of those odd impressions in my house which do mysteriously get into houses sometimes which nobody seems to have picked up in a distinct form from anybody and yet which everybody seems to have got hold of loosely from somebody and let go again that she lives or was living thereabouts mr meagles handed him a slip of paper on which was written the name of one of the dull by-streets in the grosvenor region near park lane here is no number said arthur looking it over no number my dear clennam returned his friend no anything the very name of the street may have been floating in the air for as i tell you none of my people can say where they got it from however it's worth an inquiry and as i would rather make it in company than alone and as you too were a fellow-traveller of that immovable woman's i thought perhaps clennam finished the sentence for him by taking up his hat again and saying he was ready it was now summer-time a grey hot dusty evening they rode to the top of oxford street and there alighting dived in among the great streets of melancholy stateliness and the little streets that try to be as stately and succeed in being more melancholy of which there is a labyrinth near park lane 
wildernesses of corner-houses, with barbarous old porticoes and appurtenances, horrors that came into existence under some wrong-headed person in some wrong-headed time, still demanding the blind admiration of all ensuing generations, and determined to do so until they tumbled down, frowned upon the twilight. Parasite little tenements, with a cramp in their whole frame from the dwarf hall-door on the giant model of his graces in the square to the squeezed window of the boudoir commanding the dunghills and the mews made the evening doleful rickety dwellings of undoubted fashion but of a capacity to hold nothing comfortably except a dismal smell looked like the last result of the great mansions breeding in and in and where their little supplementary bows and balconies were supported on thin iron columns seemed to be scrofulously resting upon crutches. Here and there a hatchment, with a whole science of heraldry in it, loomed down upon the street, like an archbishop discoursing on vanity. The shops, few in number, made no show, for popular opinion was as nothing to them. The pastry-cook knew who was on his books, and in that knowledge could be calm, with a few glass cylinders of dowager peppermint drops in his window, and half a dozen ancient specimens of currant jelly a few oranges formed the greengrocer's whole concession to the vulgar mind a single basket made of moss once containing plover's eggs held all that the poulterer had to say to the rabble everybody in those streets seemed which is always the case at that hour and season to be gone out to dinner and nobody seemed to be giving the dinners they had gone to on the doorsteps there were lounging footmen with bright party-coloured plumage and white poles like an extinct race of monstrous birds, and butlers, solitary men of recluse demeanour, each of whom appeared distrustful of all the other butlers. The roll of carriages in the park was done for the day. The street-lamps were lighting, and wicked little grooms, in the tightest-fitting garments, with twists in their legs answering to the twists in their minds, hung about in pairs, chewing straws, and exchanging fraudulent secrets. The spotted dogs, who went out with the carriages, and who were so associated with splendid equipages, that it looked like a condescension in those animals to come out without them, accompanied helpers to and fro on messages. Here and there was a retiring public-house, which did not require to be supported on the shoulders of the people, and where gentlemen out of livery were not much wanted. This last discovery was made by the two friends in pursuing their inquiries. Nothing was there, or anywhere, known of such a person as Miss Wade, in connection with the street they sought. It was one of the parasite streets, long, regular, narrow, dull, and gloomy, like a brick-and-mortar funeral. They inquired at several little area gates, where a dejected youth stood spiking his chin on the summit of a precipitous little chute of wooden steps, but could gain no information. They walked up the street on one side of the way, and down it on the other what time two vociferous news-sellers, announcing an extraordinary event that had never happened, and never would happen, pitched their hoarse-voices into the secret chambers, but nothing came of it. At length they stood at the corner from which they had begun, and it had fallen quite dark, and they were no wiser. It happened that in the street they had several times passed a dingy house, apparently empty, with bills in the windows, announcing that it was to let— the bills as a variety in the funeral procession almost amounted to a decoration perhaps because they kept the house separated in his mind or perhaps because mr meagles and himself had twice agreed in passing it is clear she don't live there 
Clennam now proposed that they should go back and try that house before finally going away. Mr. Meagles agreed, and back they went. They knocked once, and they rang once, without any response. "'Empty,' said Mr. Meagles, listening. "'Once more,' said Clennam, and knocked again. After that knock, they heard a movement below, and somebody shuffling up towards the door. The confined entrance was so dark that it was impossible to make out distinctly what kind of person opened the door, but it appeared to be an old woman. "'Excuse our troubling you,' said Clennam. "'Pray, can you tell us where Miss Wade lives?' The voice in the darkness unexpectedly replied, "'Lives here.' "'Is she at home?' No answer coming, Mr. Meagles asked again. "'Pray, is she at home?' After another delay, "'I suppose she is,' said the voice abruptly. "'You better come in, and I'll ask.' There was summarily shut into the close black house, and the figure rustling away, and speaking from a higher level, said, "'Come up, if you please. You can't tumble over anything.' They groped their way upstairs towards a faint light, which proved to be the light of the street shining through a window and the figure left them shut in an airless room. "'This is odd, Clennam,' said Mr. Meagles softly. "'Odd enough,' assented Clennam in the same tone. "'But we have succeeded. That's the main point. Here's a light coming.' The light was a lamp, and the bearer was an old woman, very dirty, very wrinkled and dry. "'She's at home,' she said, and the voice was the same that had spoken before. "'She'll come directly.' Having set the lamp down on the table, the old woman dusted her hands on her apron, which she might have done for ever without cleaning them, looked at the visitor with a dim pair of eyes, and backed out. The lady whom they had come to see, if she were the present occupant of the house, appeared to have taken up her quarters there, as she might have established herself in an eastern caravanserai. A small square of carpet in the middle of the room, a few articles of furniture that evidently did not belong to the room, and a disorder of trunks and travelling articles formed the whole of her surroundings. Under some former regular inhabitant, the stifling little apartment had broken out into a pier-glass and a gilt table, but the gilding was as faded as last year's flowers, and the glass was so clouded that it seemed to hold in magic preservation all the fogs and bad weather it had ever reflected. The visitors had had a minute or two to look about them, when the door opened, and Miss Wade came in. She was exactly the same as when they had parted, just as handsome, just as scornful, just as repressed. She manifested no surprise in seeing them, nor any other emotion. She requested them to be seated, and declining to take a seat herself, at once anticipated any introduction of their business. "'I apprehend,' she said, that I know the cause of your favouring me with this visit. We may come to it at once." "'The cause, then, ma'am,' said Mr. Meagles, "'is Tattycoram.' "'So I supposed.' "'Miss Wade,' said Mr. Meagles, "'will you be so kind as to say whether you know anything of her?' "'Surely. I know she is here with me.' "'Then, ma'am,' said Mr. Meagles, allow me to make known to you that I shall be happy to have her back, and that my wife and daughter will be happy to have her back. 
She has been with us a long time. We don't forget her claims upon us, and I hope we know how to make allowances.' "'You hope to know how to make allowances?' she returned in a level-measured voice. "'For what?' "'I think my friend would say, Miss Wade,' Arthur Clennam interposed, seeing Mr. Meagles rather at a loss, for the passionate sense that sometimes comes upon the poor girl of being at a disadvantage, which occasionally gets the better of better remembrances. The lady broke into a smile as she turned her eyes upon him. Indeed, was all she answered. She stood by the table so perfectly composed, and still, after this acknowledgment of his remark, that Mr. Meagles stared at her under a sort of fascination, and could not even look to Clennam to make another move. After waiting, awkwardly enough for some moments, Arthur said, "'Perhaps it would be well if Mr. Meagles could see her, Miss Wade?' "'That is easily done,' said she. "'Come here, child.' She had opened a door while saying this, and now led the girl in by the hand. It was very curious to see them standing together, the girl with her disengaged fingers plaiting the bosom of her dress, half irresolutely, half passionately, Miss Wade, with her composed face attentively regarding her, and suggesting to an observer, with extraordinary force in her composure itself, as a veil will suggest the form it covers, the unquenchable passion of her own nature. "'See here,' she said in the same level way as before, "'here is your patron, your master. He is willing to take you back, my dear, if you are sensible of the favour and choose to go.' You can be, again, a foil to his pretty daughter, a slave to her pleasant willfulness, and a toy in the house showing the goodness of the family. You can have your droll name again, playfully pointing you out and setting you apart, as it is right that you should be pointed out and set apart. Your birth, you know. You must not forget your birth. You can again be shown to this gentleman's daughter, Harriet, and kept before her, as a living reminder of her own superiority and her gracious condescension. You can recover all these advantages, and many more of the same kind which I dare say start up in your memory while I speak, and which you lose in taking refuge with me. You can recover them all by telling these gentlemen how humbled and penitent you are, and by going back to them to be forgiven. What do you say, Harriet? Will you go?" The girl who, under the influence of these words, had gradually risen in anger, and heightened in colour, answered, raising her lustrous black eyes for the moment, and clenching her hand upon the folds it had been puckering up. "'I'd die sooner!' Miss Wade, still standing at her side, holding her hand, looked quietly round, and said with a smile, "'Gentlemen, what do you do upon that?' Poor Mr. Meagles's inexpressible consternation, in hearing his motives and actions so perverted, had prevented him from interposing any word until now but now he regained the power of speech. "'Tatty Coram,' said he, "'for I'll call you by that name still, my good girl, conscious that I meant nothing but kindness when I gave it to you, and conscious that you know it.' "'I don't,' said she, looking up again, and almost rending herself with the same busy hand. "'No, not now, perhaps.' said Mr. Meagles, not with that lady's eyes so intent upon you, Tatty Coram. She glanced at them for a moment. And that power over you, which we see she exercises. Not now, perhaps, 
but at another time. Tatty Coram, I'll not ask that lady whether she believes what she has said, even in the anger and ill-blood in which I and my friend here equally know she has spoken, though she subdues herself with the determination that any one who has once seen her is not likely to forget. I'll not ask you, with your remembrance of my house and all belonging to it, whether you believe it. I'll only say that you have no profession to make to me or mine, and no forgiveness to entreat, and that all in the world that I ask you to do is to count five-and-twenty, Tattycoram." She looked at him for an instant, and then said frowningly, "'I won't. Miss Wade, take me away, please.' The contention that raged within her had no softening in it now. It was wholly between passionate defiance and stubborn defiance. Her rich colour, her quick blood, her rapid breath, were all setting themselves against the opportunity of retracing their steps. "'I won't! I won't! I won't!' she repeated in a low, thick voice. "'I'll be torn to pieces first! I'll tear myself to pieces first. Miss Wade, who had released her hold, laid her hand protectingly on the girl's neck for a moment, and then said, looking round with her former smile, and speaking exactly in her former tone, "'Gentlemen, what do you do upon that?' "'Oh, Tatty Coram, Tatty Coram,' cried Mr. Meagles, adjuring her besides with an earnest hand, "'hear that lady's voice, look at that lady's face, consider what is in that lady's heart.' and think what a future lies before you. My child, whatever you may think, that lady's influence over you, astonishing to us, and I should hardly go too far in saying, terrible to us to see, is founded in passion fiercer than yours, and temper more violent than yours. What can you two be together? What can come of it?' "'I am alone here, gentlemen,' observed Miss Wade, with no change of voice or manner. "'Say anything you will. "'Politeness must yield to this misguided girl, ma'am,' said Mr. Meagles. "'At her present pass, though I hope not altogether to dismiss it, even with the injury you do her so strongly before me. "'Excuse me for reminding you in her hearing. "'I must say it, that you were a mystery to all of us.' and had nothing in common with any of us, when she unfortunately fell in your way. I don't know what you are, but you don't hide, can't hide, what a dark spirit you have within you. If it should happen that you are a woman, who, from whatever cause, has a perverted delight in making a sister-woman as wretched as she is, I am old enough to have heard of such. I warn her against you and I warn you against yourself. "'Gentlemen,' said Miss Wade calmly, "'when you have concluded, Mr. Clennam, perhaps you will induce your friend—' "'Not without another effort,' said Mr. Meagles stoutly. "'Tatty Coram, my poor dear girl, count five-and-twenty. "'Do not reject the hope, the certainty this kind man offers you.' said Clennam, in a low, emphatic voice, "'Turn to the friends you have not forgotten. Think once more.' 
"'I won't! Miss Wade!' said the girl, with her bosom swelling high, and speaking with her hand held to her throat. "'Take me away!' "'Tatty Coram,' said Mr. Meagles, "'once more yet. The only thing I ask of you in the world, my child, count five-and-twenty. She put her hands tightly over her ears, confusedly tumbling down her bright black hair in the vehemence of the action, and turned her face resolutely to the wall. Miss Wade, who had watched her under this final appeal with that strange attentive smile, and that repressing hand upon her own bosom, with which she had watched her in her struggle at Marseilles, then put her arm about her waist, as if she took possession of her for evermore. And there was a visible triumph in her face, when she turned it to dismiss the visitors. "'As it is the last time I shall have the honour," she said, "'and as you have spoken of not knowing what I am, and also of the foundation of my influence here, you may now know that it is founded in a common cause. What your broken plaything is as to birth, I am. She has no name. I have no name. Her wrong is my wrong. I have nothing more to say to you.' This was addressed to Mr. Meagles, who sorrowfully went out. As Clennam followed, she said to him, with the same external composure, and in the same level voice, but with a smile that is only seen on cruel faces, a very faint smile, lifting the nostril, scarcely touching the lips, and not breaking away gradually, but instantly dismissed when done with. "'I hope the wife of your dear friend, Mr. Gowan, may be happy in the contrast of her extraction to this girl's and mine, and in the high good fortune that awaits her.' End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Seven. Book One, Chapter Twenty Eight of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. CHAPTER Twenty Eight, NOBODY'S DISAPPEARANCE Not resting satisfied with the endeavours he had made to recover his lost charge, Mr. Meagles addressed a letter of remonstrance, breathing nothing but goodwill, not only to her, but to Miss Wade, too. No answer coming to these epistles, or to another written to the stubborn girl by the hand of her late young mistress, which might have melted her if anything could, all three letters were returned weeks afterwards as having been refused at the house-door he deputed Mrs. Meagles to make the experiment of a personal interview. That worthy lady being unable to obtain one, and being steadfastly denied admission, Mr. Meagles besought Arthur to assay once more what he could do. All that came of his compliance was his discovery that the empty house was left in charge of the old woman, that Miss Wade was gone, that the waifs and strays of furniture were gone, and that the old woman would accept any number of half-crowns, and thank the donor kindly, but had no information whatever to exchange for those coins, beyond constantly offering for perusal a memorandum relative to fixtures which the house-agent's young man had left in the hall. Unwilling, even under this discomfiture, to resign the ingrate, and leave her hopeless, in case of her better dispositions, obtaining the mastery over the darker side of her character, Mr. Meagles, for six successive days, published a discreetly covert advertisement in the morning papers, to the effect that if a certain young person who had lately left home without reflection would at any time apply to his address at Twickenham, 
everything would be as it had been before, and no reproaches need be apprehended. The unexpected consequences of this notification suggested to the dismayed Mr. Meagles for the first time that some hundreds of young persons must be leaving their homes without reflection every day, for shoals of wrong young people came down to Twickenham, who, not finding themselves received with enthusiasm, generally demanded compensation by way of damages, in addition to coach hire there and back. Nor were these the only uninvited clients whom the advertisement produced. The swarm of begging letter-writers, who would seem to be always watching eagerly for any hook, however small, to hang a letter upon, wrote to say that having seen the advertisement, they were induced to apply with confidence for various sums, ranging from ten shillings to fifty pounds, not because they knew anything about the young person, but because they felt that to part with those donations would greatly relieve the advertiser's mind. Several projectors, likewise, availed themselves of the same opportunity to correspond with Mr. Meagles, as, for example, to apprise him that their attention having been called to the advertisement by a friend, they begged to state that if they should ever hear anything of the young person, they would not fail to make it known to him immediately, and that in the meantime, if he would oblige them with the funds necessary for bringing to perfection a certain entirely novel description of pump, the happiest results would ensue to mankind. Mr. Meagles and his family, under these combined discouragements, had begun reluctantly to give up Tattycoram as irrecoverable. When the new and active firm of Doyce and Clennam, in their private capacities, went down on a Saturday to stay at the cottage until Monday, the senior partner took the coach, and the junior partner took his walking-stick. A tranquil summer sunset shone upon him as he approached the end of his walk, and passed through the meadows by the riverside. He had that sense of peace, and of being lightened of a weight of care, which country quiet awakens in the breasts of dwellers in towns. Everything within his view was lovely and placid. The rich foliage of the trees, the luxuriant grass, diversified with wild flowers, the little green islands in the river, the beds of rushes, the water-lilies floating on the surface of the stream, the distant voices in boats borne musically towards him on the ripple of the water, and the evening air were all expressive of rest. In the occasional leap of a fish, or dip of an oar, or twittering of a bird not yet at roost, or distant barking of a dog, or lowing of a cow, in all such sounds there was the prevailing breath of rest, which seemed to encompass him in every scent that sweetened the fragrant air. The long lines of red and gold in the sky, and the glorious track of the descending sun, were all divinely calm. Upon the purple tree-tops far away, and on the green height near at hand up with the shades were slowly creeping, there was an equal hush. Between the real landscape and its shadow in the water there was no division. Both were so untroubled and clear, and, while so fraught with solemn mystery of life and death, so hopefully reassuring to the gazer's soothed heart, because so tenderly and mercifully beautiful. Clennam had stopped not for the first time by many times, to look about him and suffer what he saw to sink into his soul, as the shadows, looked at, seemed to sink deeper and deeper into the water. He was slowly resuming his way, when he saw a figure in the path before him which he had, perhaps, already associated with the evening and its impressions. Minnie was there alone. She had some roses in her hand, and seemed to have stood still on seeing him, waiting for him. Her face was towards him, and she appeared to have been coming from the opposite direction. There was a flutter in her manner, which Clennam had never seen in it before, 
and as he came near her, it entered his mind all at once that she was there for a set purpose to speak to him. She gave him her hand, and said, "'You wonder to see me here by myself. But the evening is so lovely. I've strolled further than I meant at first. I thought it likely I might meet you, and that made me more confident. You always come this way, do you not?' As Clennam said that it was his favourite way, he felt her hand falter on his arm, and saw the roses shake. "'Will you let me give you one, Mr. Clennam?' I gathered them as I came out of the garden. Indeed, I almost gathered them for you, thinking it so likely I might meet you. Mr. Doyce arrived more than an hour ago, and told us you were walking down." His own hand shook, as he accepted a rose or two from hers, and thanked her. They were now by an avenue of trees. Whether they turned into it on his movement, or on hers, matters little. He never knew how that was. "'It is very grave here,' said Clennam but very pleasant at this hour. Passing along this deep shade, and out at that arch of light at the other end, we come upon the ferry, and the cottage, by the best approach, I think. In her simple garden hat, and her light summer dress, with her rich brown hair naturally clustering about her, and her wonderful eyes raised to his for a moment, with a look in which regard for him, and trustfulness in him, were strikingly blended, with a kind of timid sorrow for him. She was so beautiful, that it was well for his peace, or ill for his peace, he did not quite know which, that he had made that vigorous resolution he had so often thought about. She broke a momentary silence by inquiring if he knew that papa had been thinking of another tour abroad. He said he had heard it mentioned. She broke another momentary silence by adding with some hesitation that papa had abandoned the idea. At this he thought directly they are to be married. "'Mr. Clennam,' she said, hesitating more timidly yet, and speaking so low that he bent his head to hear her, "'I should very much like to give you my confidence, if you would not mind having the goodness to receive it. I should have very much liked to have given it to you long ago, because I felt that you were becoming so much our friend.' "'How can I be otherwise than proud of it at any time? Pray give it to me.' pray trust me." "'I could never have been afraid of trusting you,' she returned, raising her eyes frankly to his face. "'I think I would have done so some time ago, if I had known how. But I scarcely know how, even now.' "'Mr. Gowan,' said Arthur Clennam, "'has reason to be very happy. God bless his wife and him.' She wept as she tried to thank him. He reassured her, took her hand as it lay with the trembling roses in it on his arm, took the remaining roses from it, and put it to his lips. At that time, it seemed to him, he first finally resigned the dying hope that had flickered in nobody's heart so much to its pain and trouble, and from that time he became in his own eyes, as to any similar hope or prospect, a very much older man who had done with that part of life. He put the roses in his breast, and they walked on for a little while, slowly and silently, under the umbrageous trees. Then he asked her, in a voice of cheerful kindness, was there anything else that she would say to him as her friend, and her father's friend, many years older than herself? Was there any trust she would repose in him, any service she would ask of him, any little aid to her happiness that she could give him the lasting gratification of believing it was in his power to render? 
She was going to answer, when she was so touched by some little hidden sorrow or sympathy, what could it have been, that she said, bursting into tears again, "'Oh, Mr. Clennam, good, generous Mr. Clennam, pray tell me you do not blame me.' "'I blame you?' said Clennam. "'My dearest girl, I blame you. No.' After clasping both her hands upon his arm, and looking confidentially up into his face, with some hurried words to the effect that she thanked him from her heart, as she did, if it be the source of earnestness, she gradually composed herself, with now and then a word of encouragement from him, as they walked on slowly and almost silently under the darkening trees. "'And now, Minnie Gowan,' at length said Clennam, smiling, "'will you ask me nothing?' "'Oh, I have very much to ask of you.' "'That's well. I hope so. I am not disappointed.' "'You know how I am loved at home, and how I love home. You can hardly think it, perhaps, dear Mr. Clennam,' she spoke with great agitation, "'seeing me going from it of my own free will and choice, but I do so dearly love it.' "'I am sure of that,' said Clennam. "'Can you suppose I doubt it?' "'No, no. But it is strange, even to me, that loving it so much, and being so much beloved in it, I can bear to cast it away. It seems so neglectful of it, so unthankful.' "'My dear girl,' said Clennam, "'it is in the natural progress and change of time.' All homes are left so. Yes, I know. But all homes are not left with such a blank in them as there will be in mine when I am gone. Not that there is any scarcity of far better and more endearing and more accomplished girls than I am. Not that I am much. But they have made so much of me. Pet's affectionate heart was overcharged, and she sobbed while she pictured what would happen. I know. What a change papa will feel at first! And I know that at first I cannot be to him anything like what I have been these many years. And it is then, Mr. Clennam, then more than at any time that I beg and entreat you to remember him, and sometimes to keep him company, when you can spare a little while, and to tell him that you know I was fonder of him when I left him than I ever was in all my life. For there is nobody, he told me so himself, when he talked to me this very day, there is nobody he likes so well as you, or trusts so much." A clue to what had passed between the father and daughter dropped like a heavy stone into the well of Clennam's heart, and swelled the water to his eyes. He said, cheerily, but not quite so cheerily as he tried to say, that it should be done, that he gave her his faithful promise. "'If I do not speak of mamma," said Pat, more moved by, and more pretty in, her innocent grief, than Clennam could trust himself even to consider, for which reason he counted the trees between them, and the fading light, as they slowly diminished in number. "'It is because mamma will understand me better in this action, and will feel my loss in a different way, and will look forward in a different manner. But you know what a dear, devoted mother she is, and you will remember her too, will you not?' Let Minnie trust him, Clennam said. Let Minnie trust him to do all she wished. And, dear Mr. Clennam, said Minnie, because Papa, and one whom I need not name, 
do not fully appreciate and understand one another yet, as they will, by and by, and because it will be the duty, and the pride, and pleasure of my new life, to draw them to a better knowledge of one another, and to be a happiness to one another, and to be proud of one another, and to love one another, both loving me so dearly. Oh, as you are a kind, true man, when I am first separated from home, I am going a long distance away. Try to reconcile Papa to him a little more, and use your great influence to keep him before Papa's mind, free from prejudice, and in his real form. Will you do this for me, as you are a noble-hearted friend? Poor Pat! Self-deceived, mistaken child! When were such changes ever made in man's natural relations to one another? When was such reconcilement of ingrained differences ever effected? It has been tried many times by other daughters, Minnie. It has never succeeded. Nothing has ever come of it but failure. So Clennam thought, so he did not say. It was too late. He bound himself to do all she asked, and she knew full well that he would do it. They were now at the last tree in the avenue. She stopped and withdrew her arm speaking to him with her eyes lifted up to his, and with the hand that had lately rested on his sleeve, trembling by touching one of the roses in his breast, as an additional appeal to him, she said, "'Dear Mr. Clennam, in my happiness, for I am happy, though you have seen me crying, I cannot bear to leave any cloud between us. If you have anything to forgive me, not anything that I have wilfully done, but any trouble I may have caused you without meaning it, or having it in my power to help it. Forgive me to-night, out of your noble heart." He stooped to meet the guileless face that met his without shrinking. He kissed it, and answered, Heaven knew that he had nothing to forgive. As he stooped to meet the innocent face once again, she whispered, Good-bye. And he repeated it. It was taking leave of all his old hopes, all nobody's old restless doubts. They came out of the avenue next moment arm in arm as they had entered it, and the trees seemed to close up behind them in the darkness, like their own perspective of the past. The voices of Mr. and Mrs. Meagles and Doyce were audible directly, speaking near the garden gate. Hearing Pet's name among them, Clennam called out, "'She is here with me!' There was some little wondering and laughing until they came up, but as soon as they had all come together it ceased, and Pet glided away. Mr. Meagles, Doyce, and Clennam, without speaking, walked up and down on the brink of the river, in the light of the rising moon, for a few minutes, and then Doyce lingered behind and went into the house. Mr. Meagles and Clennam walked up and down together for a few minutes more, without speaking, until at length the former broke silence. "'Arthur,' said he, using that familiar address for the first time in their communication, "'do you remember my telling you, as we walked up and down one hot morning, looking over the harbour at Marseilles, that Pet's baby sister, who was dead, seemed to mother and me to have grown as she had grown, and changed as she had changed?' "'Very well.' "'You remember my saying that our thoughts had never been able to separate those twin sisters, and that in our fancy, whatever Pet was, the other was?' "'Yes, very well,' 
"'Arthur,' said Mr. Meagles, much subdued, "'I carry that fancy further to-night. "'I feel to-night, my dear fellow, "'as if you had loved my dead child very tenderly, "'and had lost her when she was like what pet is now.' "'Thank you,' murmured Clennam. "'Thank you,' and pressed his hand. "'Will you come in?' said Mr. Meagles presently. "'In a little while.' Mr. Meagles fell away, and he was left alone. When he had walked on the river's brink in the peaceful moonlight for some half an hour, he put his hand in his breast and tenderly took out the handful of roses. Perhaps he put them to his heart, perhaps he put them to his lips, but certainly he bent down on the shore and gently launched them on the flowing river. Pale and unreal in the moonlight, the river floated them away. The lights were bright within doors when he entered, and the faces on which they shone, his own face not excepted, were soon quietly cheerful. They talked of many subjects. His partner never had had such a ready store to draw upon for the beguiling of the time, and so to bed and to sleep, while the flowers, pale and unreal in the moonlight, floated away upon the river, and thus do greater things at once were in our breasts and near our hearts, flow from us to the eternal seas. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Eight Book One, Chapter Twenty-Nine of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Twenty-Nine. Mrs. Flintwinch goes on dreaming. The house in the city preserved its heavy dullness through all these transactions, and the invalid within it turned the same unvarying round of life. Morning, noon, and night, morning, noon, and night, each recurring with its accompanying monotony, always the same reluctant return of the same sequences of machinery, like a dragging piece of clockwork. The wheelchair had its associated remembrances and reveries, one may suppose, as every place that has made the station of a human being has. Pictures of demolished streets and altered houses, as they formerly were, when the occupant of the chair was familiar with them, images of people as they used to be, with little or no allowance made for the lapse of time since they were seen, of these there must have been many in the long routine of gloomy days. To stop the clock of busy existence at the hour when they were personally sequestered from it, to suppose mankind stricken motionless when they were brought to a standstill, to be unable to measure the changes beyond our view by any larger standard than the shrunken one of our own uniform and contracted existence, is the infirmity of many invalids, and the mental unhealthiness of almost all recluses. What scenes and actors the stern woman most reviewed, as she sat from season to season in her one dark room, none knew but herself. Mr. Flintwinch, with his wry presence, brought to bear upon her daily, like some eccentric mechanical force, would perhaps have screwed it out of her, if there had been less resistance in her, but she was too strong for him. So far as Mistress Affery was concerned, 
to regard her liege lord and her disabled mistress with a face of blank wonder, to go about the house after dark with her apron over her head, always to listen for the strange noises and sometimes to hear them, and never to emerge from her ghostly, dreamy, sleep-waking state, was occupation enough for her. There was a fair stroke of business doing, as Mistress Affery made out, for her husband had abundant occupation in his little office, and saw more people than had been used to come there for some years. This might easily be, the house having been long deserted, but he did receive letters and comers and keep books and correspond. Moreover, he went about to other counting-houses, and to wharves and docks, and to the custom-house, and to Garraway's coffee-house, and the Jerusalem coffee-house, and on change, so that he was much in and out. He began, too, sometimes of an evening, when Mrs. Clennam expressed no particular wish for his society, to resort to a tavern in the neighbourhood, to look at the shipping news, and closing prices in the evening paper, and even to exchange small socialities with mercantile sea-captains, who frequented that establishment. At some period of every day, he and Mrs. Clennam held a council on matters of business, and it appeared to Affery, who was always groping about, listening and watching, that the two clever ones were making money. The state of mind into which Flintwinch's dazed lady had fallen, had now begun to be so expressed in all her looks and actions, that she was held in very low account by the two clever ones, as a person never of strong intellect, who was becoming foolish. Perhaps because her appearance was not of a commercial caste, or perhaps because it occurred to him that his having taken her to wife might expose his judgment to doubt in the minds of customers, Mr. Flintwinch laid his commands upon her, that she should hold her peace on the subject of her conjugal relations, and should no longer call him Jeremiah, out of the domestic trio. Her frequent forgetfulness of this admonition intensified her startled manner. Since Mr. Flintwinch's habit of avenging himself on her remissness, by making springs after her on the staircase, and shaking her, occasioned her to be always nervously uncertain when she might be thus waylaid next. Little Dorrit had finished a long day's work in Mrs. Clennam's room, and was neatly gathering up her shreds and odds and ends before going home. Mr. Panks, whom Affery had just shown in, was addressing an inquiry to Mrs. Clennam on the subject of her health, coupled with the remark that, happening to find himself in that direction, he had looked in to inquire, on behalf of his proprietor, how she found herself. Mrs. Clennam, with a deep contraction of her brows, was looking at him. "'Mr. Casby knows,' said she, "'that I am not subject to changes. The change that I await here is the great change.' "'Indeed, ma'am,' returned Mr. Panks, with a wandering eye towards the figure of the little seamstress, on her knee, picking threads and fraying of her work from the carpet. "'You look nicely, ma'am.' "'I bear what I have to bear,' she answered. "'Do you what you have to do?' "'Thank you, ma'am,' said Mr. Panks. "'Such is my endeavour. "'You are often in this direction, are you not?' asked Mrs. Clennam. "'Why, yes, ma'am,' said Panks. "'Rather so lately. "'I have lately been round this way a good deal.' owing to uh, one thing and another. "'Beg Mr. Casby and his daughter not to trouble themselves by deputy about me. When they wish to see me, they know I am here to see them. They have no need to trouble themselves to send. You have no need to trouble yourself to come.' "'Not the least trouble, ma'am,' said Mr. Panks. "'You really are looking uncommonly nicely, ma'am.' "'Thank you,' 
good evening.' The dismissal and its accompanying finger pointed straight at the door, was so curt and direct that Mr. Panks did not see his way to prolong his visit. He stirred up his hair with the sprightliest expression, glanced at the little figure again, and said, "'Good evening, ma'am. Uh, don't come down, Mrs. Affery. I know the road to the door,' and steamed out. Mrs. Clennam, her chin resting on her hand, followed him with attentive and darkly distrusting eyes, and Affery stood looking at her as if she were spellbound. Slowly and thoughtfully Mrs. Clennam's eyes turned from the door by which Panks had gone out, to little Dorrit rising from the carpet. With her chin drooping more heavily on her hand, and her eyes vigilant and lowering, the sick woman sat looking at her until she attracted her attention. Little Dorrit coloured under such a gaze, and looked down. Mrs. Clennam still sat intent. "'Little Dorrit,' she said, when she at last broke silence, "'what do you know of that man?' "'I don't know anything of him, ma'am, except that I have seen him about, and that he has spoken to me.' "'What has he said to you?' "'I don't understand what he has said. He's so strange. But nothing rough or disagreeable.' "'Why does he come here to see you?' "'I don't know, ma'am,' said Little Dorrit, with perfect frankness. "'You know that he does come here to see you?' "'I have fancied so.' said Little Dorrit. "'But why he should come here, or anywhere, for that, ma'am, I can't think.' Mrs. Clennam cast her eyes towards the ground, and with her strong, set face, as intent upon a subject in her mind as it had lately been upon the form that seemed to pass out of her view, sat absorbed. Some minutes elapsed before she came out of this thoughtfulness, and resumed her hard composure. Little Dorrit, in the meanwhile, had been waiting to go, but afraid to disturb her by moving. She now ventured to leave the spot where she had been standing since she had risen, and to pass gently round by the wheeled chair. She stopped at its side, to say, "'Good-night, ma'am.' Mrs. Clennam put out her hand, and laid it on her arm. Little Dorrit, confused under the touch, stood faltering. Perhaps some momentary recollection of the story of the princess may have been in her mind." "'Tell me, little Dorrit,' said Mrs. Clennam, "'have you many friends now?' "'Very few, ma'am, besides you. Only Miss Flora, and one more.' "'Meaning,' said Mrs. Clennam, with her unbent finger again pointing to the door, "'that man?' "'Oh, no, ma'am.' "'Some friend of his, perhaps?' "'No, ma'am.' Little Dorrit earnestly shook her head. "'Oh, no! No one at all like him, or belonging to him.' "'Well,' said Mrs. Clennam, almost smiling, "'it is no affair of mine. I ask because I take an interest in you, and because I believe I was your friend when you had no other who could serve you. Is that so?' "'Yes, ma'am, indeed it is. I have been here many a time when, but for you and the work you gave me, we should have wanted everything.' "'We,' repeated Mrs. Clennam, looking towards the watch, once her dead husband's, which always lay upon her table, "'are there many of you?' "'Only father and I now. I mean, only father and I to keep regularly out of what we get.' "'Have you undergone many privations, you and your father, and who else there may be of you?' asked Mrs. Clennam, speaking deliberately and meditatively, turning the watch over and over. "'Sometimes it has been rather hard to live,' 
said Little Dorrit, in her soft voice and timid, uncomplaining way, but I think not harder as to that than many people find it. "'That's well said,' Mrs. Clennam quickly returned. "'That's the truth. You're a good, thoughtful girl. You're a grateful girl, too, or I much mistake you.' "'It is only natural to be that. There is no merit in being that,' said Little Dorrit. "'I am indeed.' Mrs. Clennam, with a gentleness of which the dreaming Affery had never dreamed her to be capable, drew down the face of her little seamstress, and kissed her on the forehead. "'Now go, little Dorrit,' said she, "'or you will be late, poor child.' In all the dreams Mistress Affery had been piling up since she first became devoted to the pursuit, she had dreamed nothing more astonishing than this. Her head ached with the idea that she would find the other clever one kissing little Dorrit next, and then the two clever ones embracing each other, and dissolving into tears of tenderness for all mankind. The idea quite stunned her, as she attended the light footsteps down the stairs, that the house-door might be safely shut. On opening it to let little Dorrit out, she found Mr. Pancks, instead of having gone his way, as in any less wonderful place and among less wonderful phenomena he might have been reasonably expected to do, fluttering up and down the court outside the house. The moment he saw little Dorrit, he passed her briskly, said with his finger to his nose, as Mrs. Affery distinctly heard, "'Panks, the gypsy, fortune-telling,' and went away. "'Lord, save us! Here's a gypsy, and a fortune-teller in it now!' cried Mr. Saffrey. "'What next?' She stood at the open door, staggering herself with this enigma on a rainy, thundery evening. The clouds were flying fast, and the wind was coming up in gusts, banging some neighbouring shutters that had broken loose, twirling the rusty chimney-cowls and weathercocks, and rushing round and round a confined adjacent churchyard, as if it had a mind to blow the dead citizens out of their graves. The low thunder, muttering in all quarters of the sky at once, seemed to threaten vengeance for this attempted desecration, and to mutter, "'Let them rest! Let them rest!' Mistress Affery, whose fear of thunder and lightning was only to be equalled by her dread of the haunted house with a premature and preternatural darkness in it, stood undecided whether to go in or not, until the question was settled for her by the door blowing upon her in a violent gust of wind and shutting her out. "'Oh! What was to be done now? What was to be done now?' cried Mistress Affery, wringing her hands in this last uneasy dream of all when she's all alone by herself inside, and can do no more come down to open it than the churchyard dead themselves. In this dilemma, Mistress Affery, with her apron as a hood to keep the rain off, ran crying up and down the solitary paved enclosure several times. Why she should then stoop down and look in at the keyhole of the door, as if an eye would open it, it would be difficult to say, but it is none the less what most people would have done in the same situation, and it is what she did. From this posture she started up suddenly with a half-scream, feeling something on her shoulder. It was the touch of a hand, of a man's hand. The man was dressed like a traveller, in a foraging cap with fur about it, and a heap of cloak. He looked like a foreigner. He had a quantity of hair and moustache, jet black, except at the shaggy ends, where it had a tinge of red, and a high hook nose. He laughed at Mistress Affery's start and cry, and as he laughed, his moustache went up under his nose, and his nose came down over his moustache. 
"'What's the matter?' he asked in plain English. "'What are you frightened at?' "'At you!' panted Affery. "'Me, madame? "'And it is more evening, and, and everything,' said Affery. "'And here, the wind has been and blown the door to, and I can't get in.' "'Ha!' said the gentleman, who took that very coolly. "'Indeed!' "'Do you know such a name as Clennam about here?' Uh, "'Lord bless us! I should think I did! I should think I did!' cried Affery, exasperated into a new wringing of hands by the inquiry. "'Where about here?' "'Where?' cried Affery, goaded into another inspection of the keyhole. "'Where? But here in this house!' "'And she's all alone in her room, and lost the use of her limbs, "'and can't stir to help herself or me, and t'other clever one's out, "'and, oh, Lord, forgive me!' cried Affery, "'driven into a frantic dance by these accumulated considerations. "'If I ain't a-going headlong out of my mind!' "'Taking a warmer view of the matter, now that it concerned himself, "'the gentleman stepped back to glance at the house.' and his eye soon rested on the long, narrow window of the little room near the hall door. "'Where may the lady be who has lost the use of her limbs, madame?' he inquired, with that peculiar smile which Mistress Affery could not choose but keep her eyes upon. "'Up there,' said Affery, "'them two windows.' "'Ha! I am of a fair size.' but could not have the honour of presenting myself in that room without a ladder. Now, madame, frankly, frankness is a part of my character. Shall I open the door for you? Yes, bless you, sir, for a dear creature, and do it at once, cried Affery, for she may be a-calling to me at this very present minute, or may be setting herself afire, and burning herself for death, or this not knowing, or may be happening to her, and me a-going out of my mind at thinking of it. Stay, my good madam, he restrained her impatience with the smooth white hand. Business hours, I apprehend, are over for the day. Yes, 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 cried Affery, long ago. Let me make, then, if a proposal. Fairness is a part of my character. I am just landed from the packet-boat, as you may see. He showed her that his cloak was very wet, and that his boots were saturated with water. She had previously observed that he was dishevelled and sallow, as if from a rough voyage, and so chilled that he could not keep his teeth from chattering. I am just landed from the packet-boat, madame, and have been delayed by the weather. The infernal weather! In consequence of this, madame, some necessary business that I should otherwise have transacted here, within the regular hours, necessary business because money business still remains to be done. Now, if you will fetch any authorised neighbouring somebody to do it in return for my opening the door, I'll open the door. If this arrangement should be objectionable, I'll— and with the same smile he made a significant feint of backing away. Mistress Affery, heartily glad to effect the proposed compromise, gave in her willing adhesion to it. The gentleman at once requested her to do him the favour of holding his cloak, took a short run at the narrow window, made a leap at the sill, clung his way up the bricks, 
and in a moment had his hand at the sash raising it. His eyes looked so very sinister as he put his leg into the room, and glanced round at Mistress Affery, that she thought with a sudden coldness, if he were to go straight upstairs to murder the invalid, what could she do to prevent him? Happily he had no such purpose, for he reappeared in a moment at the house-door. "'Now, my dear madame,' he said as he took back his cloak and threw it on, "'if you have the goodness to—' "'What the devil's that?' The strangest of sounds, evidently close at hand from the peculiar shock it communicated to the air, yet subdued as if it were far off. A tremble, a rumble, and a fall of some light dry matter. "'What the devil is it?' "'I don't know what it is, but I've heard the like of it over and over again,' said Affery, who had caught his arm. He could hardly be a very brave man. Even she thought in her dreamy start and fright, for his trembling lips had turned colourless. After listening a few moments, he made light of it. "'Bah! Nothing! <laughs> now, my dear madame, I think you spoke of some clever personage. Will you be so good as to confront me with that genius?' He held the door in his hand, as though he were quite ready to shut her out again if she failed. "'Don't you say anything about the door and me, then?' whispered Affery. "'Not a word.' "'And don't you stir from here, or speak if she calls, while I run round the corner.' "'Madame, I am a statue.' Affery had so vivid a fear of his going stealthily upstairs the moment her back was turned, that after hurrying out of sight, she returned to the gateway to peep at him. Seeing him still on the threshold, more out of the house than in it, as if he had no love for darkness and no desire to probe its mysteries, she flew into the next street and sent a message into the tavern to Mr. Flintwinch, who came out directly. The two returning together, the lady in advance, and Mr. Flintwinch coming up briskly behind, animated with the hope of shaking her before she could get housed, saw the gentleman standing in the same place in the dark, and heard the strong voice of Mrs. Clennam calling from her room. "'Who is it?' "'What is it?' "'Why does no one answer?' Who is that down there? End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Nine. Book One, Chapter Thirty of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens Book One Poverty Chapter Thirty The Word of a Gentleman When Mr. and Mrs. Flintwinch panted up to the door of the old house in the twilight, Jeremiah, within a second of Affery, the stranger started back. "'Death of my soul!' he exclaimed. "'Why, how did you get here?' Mr. Flintwinch, to whom these words were spoken, repaid the stranger's wonder in full. He gazed at him with blank astonishment. He looked over his own shoulder, as expecting to see someone he had not been aware of standing behind him. He gazed at the stranger again, speechlessly, at a loss to know what he meant. He looked to his wife for explanation. Receiving none, he pounced upon her, and shook her with such heartiness that he shook her cap off her head, saying between his teeth, with grim raillery as he did it, 
Affery, my woman, you must have a doze, my woman. This is some of your tricks. You've been dreaming again, mistress. What's it about? Who is it? What does it mean? Speak out or be choked. It's the only choice I'll give you. Supposing Mistress Affery to have any power of election at the moment, her choice was decidedly to be choked, for she answered not a syllable to this adjuration, but with her bare head wagging violently backwards and forwards, resigned herself to her punishment. The stranger, however, picking up her cap with an air of gallantry, interposed. "'Permit me,' said he, laying his hand on the shoulder of Jeremiah, who stopped and released his victim. "'Thank you. Excuse me. Husband and wife, I know, from this playfulness. <laughs> Always agreeable to see that relation playfully maintained. <laughs> Listen, may I suggest that somebody upstairs in the dark is becoming energetically curious to know what is going on here?' This reference to Mrs. Clennam's voice reminded Mr. Flintwinch to step into the hall and call up the staircase. "'It's all right, I'm here. Affery is coming with your light.' Then he said to the latter flustered woman, who was putting her cap on, "'Get out with you, and get upstairs.' And then turned to the stranger and said to him, "'Now, sir, what might you please to want?' "'I am afraid,' said the stranger, I must be so troublesome as to propose a candle. True, assented Jeremiah. I was going to do so. Please to stand where you are while I get one. The visitor was standing in the doorway, but turned a little into the gloom of the house as Mr. Flintwinch turned, and pursued him with his eyes into the little room where he groped about for a phosphorus box. When he found it, it was damp, or otherwise out of order, and match after match that he struck into it, lighted sufficiently to throw a dull glare about his groping face, and to sprinkle his hands with pale little spots of fire, but not sufficiently to light the candle. The stranger, taking advantage of this fitful illumination of his visage, looked intently and wonderingly at him. Jeremiah, when he at last lighted the candle, knew he had been doing this, by seeing the last shade of a lowering watchfulness clear away from his face, as it broke into the doubtful smile that was a large ingredient in its expression. "'Be so good,' said Jeremiah, closing the house-door, and taking a pretty sharp survey of the smiling visitor in his turn, "'as to step into my counting-house. It's all right, I tell you.' Petulantly breaking off to answer the voice upstairs, still unsatisfied, though Affery was there, speaking in persuasive tones, "'Don't I tell you it's all right? Preserve the woman has no reason at all in her.' "'Timorous,' remarked the stranger. "'Timorous,' said Mr. Flintwinch, turning his head to retort, as he went before with the candle. "'More courageous than ninety men and hundred, sir, let me tell you.' "'Though an invalid?' "'Many years an invalid, Mrs. Clennam. The only one of that name left in the house now.' my partner. Saying something apologetically, as he crossed the hall, to the effect that at that time of night they were not in the habit of receiving any one, and were always shut up, Mr. Flintwinch led the way into his own office, which presented a sufficiently business-like appearance. 
Here he put the light on his desk, and said to the stranger, with his wryest twist upon him, "'Your commands?' "'My name is Blandois.' "'Blandois? I don't know it,' said Jeremiah. "'I thought it possible,' resumed the other, "'that you might have been advised from Paris.' "'We've had no advice from Paris, respecting anybody of the name of Blandois,' said Jeremiah. "'No?' "'No.' Jeremiah stood in his favourite attitude. The smiling Mr. Blandois, opening his cloak to get his hand to a breast-pocket, paused to say, with a laugh in his glittering eyes, which it occurred to Mr. Flintwinch, were too near together. "'You are so like a friend of mine, not so identically the same as I supposed, when I really did, for the moment, take you to be the same in the dusk, for which I ought to apologise. Permit me to do so. A readiness to confess my errors is, I hope, a part of the frankness of my character, still, however uncommonly like.' "'Indeed?' said Jeremiah perversely. "'But I have not received any letter of advice from anywhere respecting anybody the name of Blandois.' "'Just so,' said the stranger. "'Just so,' said Jeremiah. Mr. Blandois, not at all put out by this omission on the part of the correspondence of the House of Clennam and Co., took his pocket-book from his breast-pocket, selected a letter from that receptacle, and handed it to Mr. Flintwinch. "'No doubt you are well acquainted with the writing. Perhaps the letter speaks for itself, and requires no advice. You are a far more competent judge of such affairs than I am. It is my misfortune to be not so much a man of business as what the world calls arbitrarily a gentleman.' Mr. Flintwinch took the letter, and read, under date of Paris, we have to present to you, on behalf of the highly esteemed correspondence of our firm M. Blandois of this city, and etc., etc., such facilities as he may require, and such attentions as may lie in your power, and etc., etc. Also have to add that if you will honour Mr. Blandois' drafts at sight to the extent of, say, fifty pounds sterling, one five o, oh, and etc., etc., "'Very good, sir,' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'Take a chair. "'To the extent of anything that our house can do, "'we are in a retired, old-fashioned, steady way of business, sir. "'We shall be happy to render you our best assistance. "'I observe from the date of this "'that we could not yet be advised of it. "'Probably you came over with the delayed mail "'that brings the advice.' "'That I came over with the delayed mail, sir?' returned Mr. Blandois, passing his white hand down his high hooked nose, I know, to the cost of my head and stomach, the detestable and intolerable weather having racked them both. You see me in the plight in which I came out of the packet within this half hour. I ought to have been here hours ago, and then I should not have to apologise. Permit me. To apologize for presenting myself so unreasonably and frighteningly. No, by the by, you said not frightening. Permit me to apologize again. The esteemed lady, Mrs. Clennam, in her 
invalid chamber above stairs. Swagger, and an air of authorised condescension, do so much, that Mr. Flintwinch had already begun to think this a highly gentlemanly personage. Not the less unyielding with him on that account, he scraped his chin and said what could he have the honour of doing for Mr. Blandois to-night, out of business hours? "'Faith!' returned that gentleman, shrugging his cloaked shoulders. "'I must change, and eat, and drink, and be lodged somewhere. Have the kindness to advise me, a total stranger, where, and money is a matter of perfect indifference, until to-morrow. The nearer the place, the better. Next door, if that's all.' Mr. Flintwinch was slowly beginning— for a gentleman of your habits, there is not in this immediate neighbourhood any hotel, when Mr. Blandois took him up. So much for my habits, my dear sir, snapping his fingers. A citizen of the world has no habits, that I am in my poor way, a gentleman, by heaven, I will not deny, but I have no unaccommodating prejudiced habits. A clean room, a hot dish for dinner, and a bottle of not absolutely poisonous wine are all I want to-night. But I want that much, without the trouble of going one unnecessary inch to get it. "'There is,' said Mr. Flintwinch, with more than his usual deliberation, as he met, for a moment, Mr. Blandois' shining eyes, which were restless, "'there is a coffee-house and tavern close here, which, uh, so far, I can recommend, but there's no style about it.' "'I dispense with style,' said Mr. Blandois, waving his hand. "'Do me the honour to show me the house, and introduce me there.' if I am not too troublesome, and I shall be infinitely obliged." Mr. Flintwinch, upon this, looked up his hat, and lighted Mr. Blandois across the hall again. As he put the candle on a bracket, where the dark old panelling almost served as an extinguisher for it, he bethought himself of going up to tell the invalid that he would not be absent five minutes. "'Oblige me!' said the visitor on his saying so, by presenting my card of visit. Do me the favour to add that I shall be happy to wait on Mrs. Clennam, to offer my personal compliments, and to apologise for having occasioned any agitation in this tranquil corner, if it should suit her convenience to endure the presence of a stranger for a few minutes, after he shall have changed his wet clothes, and fortified himself with something to eat and drink. Jeremiah made all dispatch, and said on his return, "'She'll be glad to see you, sir, but being conscious that her sick-room has no attractions, wishes me to say that she won't hold you to your offer, in case you should think better of it.' "'To think better of it,' returned the gallant Blandois, "'would be to slight a lady.' To slight a lady would be to be deficient in chivalry towards the sex, and chivalry towards the sex is a part of my character." Thus expressing himself, he drew the draggled skirt of his cloak over his shoulder, and accompanied Mr. Flintwinch to the tavern, taking up on the road a porter who was waiting with his portmanteau on the outer side of the gateway. The house was kept in a homely manner and the condescension of Mr. Blandois was infinite. 
it seemed to fill to inconvenience the little bar in which the widow-lady and her two daughters received him. It was much too big for the narrow, wainscotted room with a bagatelle board in it that was first proposed for his reception. It perfectly swamped the little private holiday sitting-room of the family, which was finally given up to him. Here, in dry clothes and scented linen, with sleeked hair, a great ring on each forefinger and a massive show of watch-chain, Mr. Blandois, waiting for his dinner, lolling on a window-seat with his knees drawn up, looked, for all the difference in the setting of the jewel, fearfully and wonderfully like a certain Monsieur Rigaud, who had once so waited for his breakfast lying on the stone ledge of the iron grating of a cell in a villainous dungeon at Marseilles. His greed at dinner, too, was closely in keeping with the greed of Monsieur Rigaud at breakfast, his avaricious manner of collecting all the eatables about him, and devouring some with his eyes, while devouring others with his jaws, was the same manner. His utter disregard of other people, as shown in his way of tossing the little womanly toys of furniture about, flinging favourite cushions under his boots for a softer rest, and crushing delicate coverings with his big body and his great black head, had the same brute selfishness at the bottom of it. The softly moving hands that were so busy among the dishes had the old wicked facility of the hands that had clung to the bars, and when he could eat no more, and sat sucking his delicate fingers one by one, and wiping them on a cloth, there wanted nothing but the substitution of vine-leaves to finish the picture. On this man, with his moustache going up, and his nose coming down, in that most evil of smiles, and with his surface eyes looking as if they belonged to his dyed hair, and had had their natural power of reflecting light stopped by some similar process. Nature, always true, and never working in vain, had set the mark. Beware! It was not her fault, if the warning were fruitless. She is never to blame in any such instance. Mr. Blandois, having finished his repast and cleaned his fingers, took a cigar from his pocket, and, lying on the window-seat again, smoked it out at his leisure occasionally apostrophizing the smoke as it parted from his thin lips in a thin stream. "'Blandois, you shall turn the tables on society, my little child. Holy <laughs> blue, you have begun well, Blandois. At a pinch, an excellent master in English or French, a man for the bosom of families.' You have a quick perception, you have humour, you have ease, you have insinuating manners, you have a good appearance. In effect, you are a gentleman. A gentleman you shall live, my small boy, and a gentleman you shall die. You shall win, however the game goes. They shall all confess your merit, Blandois. You shall subdue the society which has grievously wronged you to your own high spirit. Death of my soul, you are high-spirited by right and by nature, my Blandois. To such soothing murmurs did this gentleman smoke out his cigar and drink out his bottle of wine, both being finished he shook himself into a sitting attitude, and with a concluding serious apostrophe, "'Hold, then, Blandois, you ingenious one! Have all your wits about you!' arose, and went back to the house of Clennam and Co. He was received at the door by Mistress Affery, 
who, under instructions from her lord, had lighted up two candles in the hall and a third on the staircase, and who conducted him to Mrs. Clennam's room. Tea was prepared there, and such little company arrangements had been made as usually attended the reception of expected visitors. They were slight, on the greatest occasion, never extending beyond the production of the china tea-service, and the covering of the bed with a sober and sad drapery. For the rest there was the beer-like sofa with the block upon it, and the figure in the widow's dress, as if attired for execution, the fire topped by the mound of damped ashes, the grate with its second little mound of ashes, the kettle and the smell of black dye, all as they had been for fifteen years. Mr. Flintwinch presented the gentleman, commended to the consideration of Clennam and Co., Mrs. Clennam, who had the letter lying before her, bent her head, and requested him to sit. They looked very closely at one another. That was but natural curiosity. "'I thank you, sir, for thinking of a disabled woman like me. Few who come here on business have any remembrance to bestow on one so removed from observation. It will be idle to expect that they should have, out of sight, out of mind. While I am grateful for the exception, I don't complain of the rule.' Mr. Blandois, in his most gentlemanly manner, was afraid he had disturbed her by unhappily presenting himself at such an unconscionable time, for which he had already offered his best apologies to Mr.—he begged pardon, but by name had not the distinguished honour. "'Mr. Flintwinch has been connected with the house for many years.' Mr. Blandois was Mr. Flintwinch's most obedient humble servant he entreated Mr. Flintwinch to receive the assurance of his profoundest consideration. "'My husband being dead,' said Mrs. Clennam, "'and my son preferring another pursuit. Our old house has no other representative in these days than Mr. Flintwinch.' "'What do you call yourself?' was the surly demand of that gentleman. "'You have the head of two men.' "'My sex disqualifies me.' she proceeded with merely a slight turn of her eyes in Jeremiah's direction, "'from taking a responsible part in the business, even if I had the ability. And therefore Mr. Flintwinch combines my interest with his own and conducts it. It is not what it used to be, but some of our old friends, principally the writers of this letter, have the kindness not to forget us, and we retain the power of doing what they entrust to us as efficiently as we ever did.' This, however, is not interesting to you. You are English, sir? Faith, madame, no. <laughs> I am neither born nor bred in England. In effect, I am of no country, said Mr. Blandois, stretching out his leg and smiting it. I descend from half a dozen countries. You have been much about the world? It is true. By heaven, madame, I have been here and there and everywhere. "'You have no ties, probably. Are not married?' "'Madame,' said Blandois, with an ugly fall of his eyebrows, "'I adore your sex, but I am not married. Never was.' Mistress Affery, who stood at the table near him, pouring out the tea, happened in her dreamy state to look at him as he said these words, and to fancy that she caught an expression in his eyes which attracted her own eyes, so that she could not get them away. The effect of this fancy was to keep her staring at him with the teapot in her hand, not only to her own great uneasiness, 
but manifestly to his too, and through them both to Mrs. Clennam's and Mr. Flintwinch's. Thus a few ghostly moments supervened, when they were all confusedly staring without knowing why. "'Affery!' her mistress was the first to say. "'What is the matter with you?' "'I don't know,' said Mistress Affery, with her disengaged left hand extended towards the visitor. "'It ain't me. It's him.' "'What does this good woman mean?' cried Mr. Blandois, turning white, hot, and slowly rising with a look of such deadly wrath that it contrasted surprisingly with the slight force of his words. "'How is it possible to understand this good creature?' "'It's not possible,' said Mr. Flintwinch, screwing himself rapidly in that direction. "'She don't know what she means. She's an idiot, a wanderer in her mind. She shall have a dose. She shall have a, such a dose. Get along with you, my woman," he added in her ear. "Get along with you, while you know your referee, and before you're shaken to yeast." Mistress Affery, sensible of the danger in which her identity stood, relinquished the teapot as her husband seized it, put her apron over her head, and in a twinkling vanished. The visitor gradually broke into a smile and sat down again. "You'll excuse her, Mister Blandois." said Jeremiah, pouring out the tea himself. "'She's failing and breaking up. That's what she's about. Do you take sugar, sir?' "'Thank you. Not tea for me.' "'Pardon my observing it, but that's a very remarkable watch.' The tea-table was drawn up near the sofa, with a small interval between it and Mrs. Clennam's own particular table. Mr. Blandois, in his gallantry, had risen to hand that lady her tea, her dish of toast was already there. And it was in placing the cup conveniently within her reach, that the watch, lying before her as it always did, attracted his attention. Mrs. Clennam looked suddenly up at him. "'May I be permitted?' "'Thank you.' Mm, a fine, old-fashioned watch,' he said, taking it in his hand. "'Heavy for use, but massive and genuine. I have a partiality for everything genuine. Such as I am, I am genuine myself. Ha! A gentleman's watch, with two cases, in the old fashion. May I remove it from the outer case? Ah, thank you. Ay, an old silk watch lining, worked with beads. I have often seen these among old Dutch people and Belgians. Quaint things. They are old-fashioned, too, said Mrs. Clennam. Very. But this is not so old as the watch, I think. I think not. Extraordinary how they used to complicate these ciphers, remarked Mr. Blandois, glancing up with his own smile again. Now— is this D N F? It might be almost anything. Those are the letters. Mr. Flintwinch, who had been observantly pausing all this time with a cup of tea in his hand, and his mouth open, ready to swallow the contents, began to do so. Always entirely filling his mouth before he emptied it at a gulp, and always deliberating again before he refilled it. D N F or is some tender, lovely, fascinating fair creature, I make no doubt. 
observed Mr. Blandois, as he snapped on the case again. "'I adore her memory, on the assumption. Unfortunately, for my peace of mind, I adore but too readily. It may be a vice, it may be a virtue, but adoration of female beauty and merit constitutes three parts of my character, madame.' Mr. Flintwinch had by this time poured himself out another cup of tea, which he was swallowing in gulps as before, with his eyes directed to the invalid. "'You may be heart-free here, sir,' she returned to Mr. Blandois. "'Those letters are not intended, I believe, for the initials of any name.' "'Of a motto, perhaps?' said Mr. Blandois, casually. "'Of a sentence. They have always stood, I believe, for do not forget.' "'And naturally.' said Mr. Blandois, replacing the watch, and stepping backward to his former chair, "'You do not forget.' Mr. Flintwinch, finishing his tea, not only took a longer gulp than he had yet taken, but made his succeeding pause under new circumstances. That is to say, with his head thrown back, and his cup held still at his lips, while his eyes were still directed at the invalid. She had that force of faces and that concentrated air of collecting her firmness or obstinacy, which represented in her case what would have been gesture and action in another, as she replied with her deliberate strength of speech, "'No, sir, I do not forget. To lead a life as monotonous as mine has been during many years, it is not the way to forget. To lead a life of self-correction is not the way to forget.' to be sensible of having, as we all have, every one of us, all the children of Adam, offences to expiate, and peace to make, does not justify the desire to forget. Therefore I have long dismissed it, and I neither forget, nor wish to forget." Mr. Flintwinch, who had latterly been shaking the sediment at the bottom of his teacup, round and round, here gulped it down, and putting the cup in the tea-tray, as done with, turned his eyes upon Mr. Blandois, as if to ask him what he thought of that. "'All expressed, madame,' said Mr. Blandois, with his smoothest bow, and his white hand on his breast, "'by the word, naturally, which I am proud to have had sufficient apprehension and appreciation, but without appreciation I could not be Blandois to employ.' "'Pardon me, sir,' she returned. If I doubt the likelihood of a gentleman of pleasure, and change, and politeness, accustomed to court and to be courted, oh, madame, by heaven! If I doubt the likelihood of such a character, quite comprehending what belongs to mine in my circumstances, not to obtrude doctrine upon you—she looked at the rigid pile of hard pale books before her—for you go your own way, and the consequences are on your own head. I will say this much, that I shape my course by pilots, strictly by proved and tried pilots, under whom I cannot be shipwrecked, can not be, and that, if I were unmindful of the admonition conveyed in those three letters, I should not be half as chastened as I am." It was curious how she seized the occasion to argue with some invisible opponent, perhaps of their own better sense, always turning upon herself in her own deception. If I forgot my ignorances in my life of health and freedom, I might complain of the life to which I am now condemned. I never do. I never have done. 
if I forgot that this scene, the earth, is expressly meant to be a scene of gloom and hardship and dark trial for the creatures who are made out of its dust, I might have some tenderness for its vanities. But I have no such tenderness. If I did not know that we are, every one, the subject, most justly the subject, of a wrath that must be satisfied, and against which mere actions are nothing, I might repine at the difference between me, imprisoned here, and the people who pass that gateway yonder. But I take it as a grace and favour to be elected, to make the satisfaction I am making here, to know what I know for certain here, and to work out what I have worked out here. My affliction might otherwise have had no meaning to me. Hence I would forget, and I do forget, nothing. Hence I am contented, and say it is better with me than with millions." As she spoke these words, she put her hand upon the watch, and restored it to the precise spot on her little table which it always occupied. With her touch lingering upon it, she sat for some moments afterwards, looking at it steadily and half-defiantly. Mr. Blandois, during this exposition, had been strictly attentive, keeping his eyes fastened on the lady, and thoughtfully stroking his moustache with his two hands. Mr. Flintwinch had been a little fidgety, and now struck in. "'There, there, there,' said he, "'that is quite understood, Mrs. Clennam, and you have spoken piously and well. Mr. Blandois, I suspect, is not of a pious caste.' "'On the contrary, sir,' that gentleman protested, snapping his fingers, "'your pardon. It's a part of my character. I am sensitive, ardent, conscientious, and imaginative.' A sensitive, ardent, conscientious, and imaginative man, Mr. Flintwinch, must be that, or nothing." There was an inkling of suspicion in Mr. Flintwinch's face that he might be nothing, as he swaggered out of his chair. It was characteristic of this man, as it is of all men similarly marked, that whatever he did, he overdid, though it were sometimes by only a hair's breadth, and approached to take his leave of Mrs. Clennam. "'With what will appear to you the egotism of a sick old woman, sir?' she then said. "'Though, really, through your accidental illusion, I have been led away into the subject of myself and my infirmities. Being so considerate as to visit me, I hope you will be likewise so considerate as to overlook that. Don't compliment me, if you please.' For he was evidently going to do it. "'Mr. Flintwinch will be happy to render you any service, and I hope your stay in this city may prove agreeable.' Mr. Blandois thanked her, and kissed his hand several times. "'This is an old room,' he remarked with a sudden sprightliness of manner, looking round when he got near the door. "'I have been so interested that I have not observed it. But it's a genuine old room.' "'It is a genuine old house,' said Mrs. Clennam, with her frozen smile. "'A place of no pretensions, but a piece of antiquity.' "'Faith!' cried the visitor. "'If Mr. Flintwinch would do me the favour to take me through the rooms on my way out, he could hardly oblige me more. An old house is a weakness with me. I have many weaknesses, but none greater. I love and study the picturesque in all its varieties. I have been called picturesque myself. <laughs> it is no merit to be picturesque. I have greater merits, perhaps, but I may be, by an accident, sympathy, sympathy. 
"'I tell you beforehand, Mr. Blandois, that you'll find it very dingy and very bare,' said Jeremiah, taking up the candle. "'It's not worth your looking at.' But Mr. Blandois, smiting him in a friendly manner on the back, only laughed. So the said Blandois kissed his hand again to Mrs. Clennam, and they went out of the room together. "'You don't care to go upstairs?' said Jeremiah on the landing. "'On the contrary, Mr. Flintwinch, if not tiresome to you, I shall be ravished.' Mr. Flintwinch, therefore, wormed himself up the staircase, and Mr. Blandois followed close. They ascended to the great garret bedroom which Arthur had occupied on the night of his return. "'There, Mr. Blandois,' said Jeremiah, showing it, "'I hope you may think that worth coming so hard to see. I confess I don't.' Mr. Blandois, being enraptured, they walked through other garrets and passages, and came down the staircase again. By this time Mr. Flintwinch had remarked that he never found the visitor looking at any room, after throwing one quick glance around, but always found the visitor looking at him, Mr. Flintwinch. With this discovery in his thoughts, he turned about on the staircase for another experiment. He met his eyes directly, and on the instant of their fixing one another, the visitor, with that ugly play of nose and moustache, laughed, as he had done at every similar moment since they left Mrs. Clennam's chamber, a diabolically silent laugh. As a much shorter man than the visitor, Mr. Flintwinch was at the physical disadvantage of being thus disagreeably leered at from a height, and as he went first down the staircase, and was usually a step or two lower than the other, this disadvantage was at the time increased. He postponed looking at Mr. Blandois again, until this accidental inequality was removed by their having entered the late Mr. Clennam's room. But, then twisting himself suddenly round upon him, he found his look unchanged. "'A most admirable old house,' smiled Mr. Blandois. "'So mysterious! Do you never hear any haunted noises here?' "'Noises,' returned Mr. Flintwitch. "'No.' "'Nor see any devils?' "'Not,' said Mr. Flintwinch, grimly screwing himself at his questioner. "'Not any that introduce themselves under that name and in that capacity.' "'Ha, <laughs> ha, ah, portrait here, I see,' still looking at Mr. Flintwinch, as if he were the portrait. "'It's a portrait, sir, as you observe.' "'May I ask the subject, Mr. Flintwinch?' "'Mr. Clennam, deceased, her husband.' "'Former owner of the remarkable watch, perhaps,' said the visitor. Mr. Flintwinch, who had cast his eyes towards the portrait, twisted himself about again, and again found himself the subject of the same look and smile. "'Yes, Mr. Blandois,' he replied tartly, "'it was his, and his uncle's before him.' and Lord knows who before him, and that's all I can tell you of its pedigree. "'That's a strongly marked character, Mr. Flintwinch, our friend upstairs.' "'Yes, sir,' said Jeremiah, twisting himself at the visitor again, as he did during the whole of this dialogue, like some screw-machine that fell short of its grip, for the other never changed, and he always felt obliged to retreat a little. "'She is a remarkable woman.' great fortitude, great strength of mind. "'They must have been very happy,' said Blandois. "'Who?' 
demanded Mr. Flintwinch, with another screw at him. Mr. Blanois shook his right forefinger towards the sick room, and his left forefinger towards the portrait, and then putting his arms akimbo, and striding his legs wide apart, stood smiling down at Mr. Flintwinch, with the advancing nose and the retreating moustache. "'As happy as most other merry people, I suppose,' returned Mr. Flintwinch. "'I can't say. I don't know. There are secrets in all families.' "'Secrets?' cried Mr. Blandois quickly. "'Say it again, my son.' "'I say,' replied Mr. Flintwinch, upon whom he had swelled himself so suddenly that Mr. Flintwinch found his face almost brushed by the dilated chest, "'I say there are secrets in all families.' "'So there are,' cried the other, clapping him on both shoulders, and rolling him backwards and forwards. <laughs> "'You are right. So there are.' secrets holy blue there are devil's own secrets in some families mr flintwinch with that after clapping mr flintwinch on both shoulders several times as if in a friendly and humorous way he were rallying him on a joke he had made he threw up his arms threw back his head hooked his hands together behind it and burst into a roar of laughter it was in vain for mr flintwinch to try another screw at him he had his laugh out but uh, "'Favour me with the candle a moment,' he said when he had done. "'Let us have a look at the husband of the remarkable lady, huh?' Holding up the light at arm's length. "'A decided expression of face here, too, though not of the same character. Looks as if he were saying, "'What is it? Do not forget. Does he not, Mr. Flintwinch?' "'By heaven, sir, he does!' As he returned the candle, he looked at him once more, and then, leisurely strolling out with him into the hall, declared it to be a charming old house indeed, and one which had so greatly pleased him that he would not have missed inspecting it for a hundred pounds. Throughout these singular freedoms on the part of Mr. Blandois, which involved a general alteration in his demeanour, making it much coarser and rougher, much more violent and audacious than before, Mr. Flintwinch, whose leathern face was not liable to many changes, preserved its immobility intact. Beyond now appearing, perhaps, to have been left hanging a trifle too long before that friendly operation of cutting down, he outwardly maintained an equable composure. They had brought their survey to a close in the little room at the side of the hall, and he stood there, eyeing Mr. Blandois. "'I am glad you're so well satisfied, sir,' was his calm remark. "'I didn't expect it. You seem to be in good spirits.' "'In admirable spirits,' returned Blandois. "'Word of honour. Never more refreshed in spirits. Do you ever have—' presentiments, Mr. Flintwinch. "'I'm not sure I know what you mean by that term, sir,' replied that gentleman. "'Say, in this case, Mr. Flintwinch, undefined anticipations of pleasure to come.' "'I can't say I'm sensible of such a sensation at present,' returned Mr. Flintwinch, with the utmost gravity. "'If I should find it coming on, I'll mention it.' "'Now I—' said Blandois, I, my son, have a presentiment to-night that we shall be well acquainted. Do you find it coming on?' Mm, "'No,' 
returned Mr. Flintwinch, deliberately inquiring of himself. "'I can't say I do.' "'I have a strong presentiment that we shall become intimately acquainted. You have no feeling of that sort yet?' "'Not yet,' said Mr. Flintwinch. Mr. Blandois, taking him by both shoulders again, rolled him about a little in his former merry way, then drew his arm through his own, and invited him to come off and drink a bottle of wine, like a dear deep old dog as he was. Without a moment's indecision, Mr. Flintwinch accepted the invitation, and they went out to the quarters where the traveller was lodged, through a heavy rain which had rattled on the windows, roofs, and pavements ever since nightfall. The thunder and lightning had long ago passed over, but the rain was furious. On their arrival at Mr. Blandois' room, a bottle of port wine was ordered by that gallant gentleman, who, crushing every pretty thing he could collect in the soft disposition of his dainty figure, coiled himself upon the window-seat, while Mr. Flintwinch took a chair opposite to him, with the table between them. Mr. Blandois proposed having the largest glasses in the house, to which Mr. Flintwinch assented. The bumpers filled, Mr. Blandois, with a roistering gaiety, clinked the top of his glass against the bottom of Mr. Flintwinch's, and the bottom of his glass against the top of Mr. Flintwinch's, and drank to the intimate acquaintance he foresaw. Mr. Flintwinch gravely pledged him, and drank all the wine he could get, and said nothing. As often as Mr. Blandois clinked glasses, which was at every replenishment, Mr. Flintwinch stolidly did his part of the clinking and would have stolidly done his companion's part of the wine as well as his own, being except in the article of palate a mere cask. In short, Mr. Blandois found that to pour port wine into the reticent Flintwinch was not to open him up, but to shut him up. Moreover, he had the appearance of a perfect ability to go on all night, or, if occasion were, all next day and all next night whereas mr blandois soon grew indistinctly conscious of swaggering too fiercely and boastfully he therefore terminated the entertainment at the end of the third bottle you will draw upon us to-morrow sir said mr flintwinch with a business-like face at parting my cabbage returned the other taking him by the collar with both hands i'll draw upon you have no fear adieu my flintwinch receive at parting here he gave him a southern embrace and kissed him soundly on both cheeks the word of a gentleman by a thousand thunders you shall see me again he did not present himself next day though the letter of advice came duly to hand inquiring after him at night mr flintwinch found with surprise that he had paid his bill and gone back to the continent by way of calais Nevertheless, Jeremiah scraped out of his cogitating face a lively conviction that Mr. Blandois would keep his word on this occasion, and would be seen again. End of Book One Chapter Thirty